Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hi, I am Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we're back at you with Making Action Happen, the show that we do for Action 22. We are a nonpartisan member-driven organization that serves 22 counties in Southern Colorado. And we talk about all of the public policy issues that come up uh, around every single thing that happens uh, for the whole state. So we always have a lot to talk about. Uh, We've got two really great guests today um, and we're gonna pose the same, we're posing the same basic question. And that is on all of the stuff that's happening, all the development that's going on, Um, Is Colorado capable of setting the example on how things should be done? This is no small feat on any one of those. Um, But we've got uh, we've been having a lot of conversations about redistricting. Yeah, yeah. So today we actually have Mr. Greg Brophy on and he's going to talk to us a little bit about redistricting. Greg, welcome. Well, it's good to be with you guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. So to start off, um, you know, we have a census going on right now, and with the census comes the political redistricting in every state based on population. And what we're going to see is a redistricting of the, the um, congressional districts on the federal level and also the state districts. So getting into that, I know before we jumped on, you mentioned the Y and Z and how this, you know, how this is going to affect redistricting and is it political or is it not political and and what's going to happen so start with y and z (laughs) well well uh propositions y and z passed in 2018 with overwhelming support and the question is and i think the whole country is watching colorado the question is can we do redistricting of congressional and state legislative seats in the state of colorado in a truly apolitical fashion or not and if we can you know we we will become the model, I think, an example along with Iowa for a way that it can be done to get rid of the scourge of gerrymandering. And what is gerrymandering? Everybody brings that up. Whenever you hear redistricting, it's gerrymandering. What is actually the definition of gerrymandering? Well, the the layperson's definition is using the power to draw maps to give a distinct political advantage electorally speaking, to one party over the other. Mm-hmm. You can actually use this process <clears throat> to draw districts in such a way that even though one party gets, say, 53% of the vote statewide for all of the state house seats, um, that party could be relegated to no more than 45% of the seats in the state because you successfully gerrymandered them into districts where um, – they win overwhelmingly a handful of seats and lose by four or five points enough seats to not collect the majority, even though get, they get more votes. They earn more support statewide. Interesting. Um, one question that some of the Action 22 members have on the federal side of redistricting is they, they try, you know, the, the term they're using is you got to make a competitive district. Um, and we see all these proposed maps coming out where it's, you know, just like Pueblo's one district and, you know, 
the West Slopes one district. But if I recall correctly, it's based on population, correct? Right. And on congressional, it has to be plus or minus one person from being equal with all of the other districts in the state. Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that. And, and what's the population size for a congressional district? Well, you take the estimated state population of, of uh, 5.8 million and divide that by eight, because we believe we'll have eight seats. That gives you 725,000 people to make up a congressional district. And again, on congressional, it has to be plus or minus one person. Now, in the state legislative seats, it, it can be plus or minus two and a half percent off the ideal population. Okay. Um, and you so seven hundred twenty-five. So seven hundred twenty-five thousand people. I mean, think about how many um, counties the size of Action Twenty-Two counties, with the exception of El Paso, you have to combine to reach seven hundred twenty-five thousand people. Yeah, yeah, it's it's huge, especially for the the rural area. Um, you know, our population center is obviously the Denver Metro region and El Paso County, which I think El Paso County is almost that population right now when we see the census data come in. Um, but for the rural areas, you know, you worked in a congressional district. I worked in a congressional district and the districts we worked in were some of the largest in the country. And the reason for that is you had to get that population. Um, what, what do you foresee happening with the redistricting on the congressional level in Colorado? Well, I think we're going to get the eighth seat. So that'll be an addition. Um, and everybody knows that uh, while Colorado has grown, we've added almost 800,000 people. That's our best guess mm -hmm. since the last census. You know, we were right at 5 million and we expect to be at 5.8 million this time. So 800,000 people have moved to Colorado since we did redistricting 10 years ago. And I was on the committee in the state legislature that, that tried to do that uh, in 2011. So most of those people have moved into the front range. As you mentioned, El Paso County is very close to 720,000 people now. Um, the bulk of the rest of the people will have moved into the I-25 corridor from basically from El Paso County north all the way to Fort Collins. I mean, I'm from Yuma County. I'm from Ray. And Ray or Yuma County has basically been the same size. We're right at 10,000 people, and we've been at 10,000 people since 1970, I think. So <clears throat> nothing changes out there. Um, and the reason the congressional offices that we worked in were so large is because you know, those rural counties have to be included somehow, some way. And I'm an advocate for um, maintaining two almost exclusively rural districts in Colorado. And I know Action 22 is signed on to that concept also. <clears throat> and that's because, you know, in 2011, in an attempt to do some gerrymandering, um, Douglas County was added into the fourth congressional district, which is the district yeah. for which I, I worked and where I live. And, and I consider that mine, right? So, so I'm, I, I take ownership of the fourth congressional <laughs> district. That's mine. And <clears throat> I love the folks in Douglas County, but the truth is they don't really have anything in common with the people that live in the Eastern Plains of Colorado. I mean, they have light rail and they have Park Meadows Mall and they have a median household income of something like $115,000 a year. And we don't have any of that in, in Yuma County or in Crowley County uh, or in Lincoln County. And, and we just don't have much in common with them. And, and I think it puts the congressperson then into a slightly difficult position when, um, you know, a good, what, 
40% of your constituency is supportive of the federal government partially funding a light rail project and 60% of your con constituency just wants their highways maintained with the same money. Mm -hmm. And it and it puts them in a position that they ought not be in. And so I, I just think we should have uh, the folks that start drawing these maps start off with to the, the goal of drawing two almost exclusively rural districts. One would be the Eastern Plains and one would be the Western Slope. And they obviously come together in Action 22 area. And <clears throat> I know what I would do. I mean, personally, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a farmer and I'm a homer for Eastern Colorado. I would gladly take the San Luis Valley into the 4th Congressional District. But, if, but that's not my choice. If the folks in the San Luis Valley would prefer to be with the Western Slope, then they're going to get their chance to make that case um, come June uh, when when the redistricting commission has hearings. They're, they're, they're supposed to have 21 hearings around the state for the congressional seats and an additional 21 hearings around the state for the state legislative seats. So I imagine we'll have a hearing right there in San Luis Valley, probably Alamosa. Yeah, and one more question about the federal side. Um, when they look at this redistricting and when the committee is going to look at it, is there, do they try to choose a commonality of what's represented in a congressional district? Again, going back to the, you know, Douglas County and Los Animas County are two sides, like different sides of a coin. They're polar opposites, right? So right. when they're going to look at this, do they take that in consideration when doing the redistricting maps? They are supposed to. There okay. are, there are criteria that they're supposed to follow when they're drawing these maps. And this becomes even more important when you get down to drawing the state legislative maps. You know, I, I, as we said, a, a congressional district is going to have 725,000 people in it for crying out loud. A district for the state House of Representatives in Colorado, there's 65 of them, it's going to have about 89,000 people in it. But one of the criteria for the drawing of these maps is that you're supposed to keep communities of interest together. And so that's what, that's what I look at a lot when I'm talking to people about, you know, what makes a community of interest. And, and honestly, there's almost nothing in common, no community interest between Los Animas County and Douglas County. Right. And the question is, <clears throat> when you're, when you're putting 720,000 people together, or 725,000 people together, you, you know, what, what constitutes a, a community of interest that's that large. Yeah. Well, I think one of them is obviously agriculture and energy production, which is what you know you see in, in Eastern Colorado. And another community of interest for the district that you know so well, Brian, is is uh, public lands and yeah. natural resource issues that that are you know important to the people that live in the third congressional district um, and you know the western slope of Colorado, the current third congressional district, western slope of Colorado. So that's the that's one of the that's one of the items you're supposed to not unnecessarily break up political subdivisions. So you're not supposed to split a county in two unless you absolutely have to or a city in two unless you absolutely have to. Um, you are supposed to try to make um, seats that are competitive where possible or highly competitive okay. where possible. <clears throat> that's a little yeah. more challenging in eastern Colorado, for instance, because, you know, we're just overwhelmingly conservative in most of eastern Colorado. So uh, competitiveness is probably not going to be a major item of consideration for eastern Colorado. And, and, and competitiveness is last on the list of things listed in Y and Z for 
consideration when drawing districts. Hmm. And then uh, my my other question is, do they take in geography as a factor? Again, working in the third district, you know, it, it was quicker for me to drive to the ocean than it was to Grand Junction sometimes from Pueblo. <laughs> uh, is that a factor that they're looking at when they're going to split this up? Um, one of the factors is compactness of the district. Now, as we said earlier, you can't make rural districts compact, mm -hmm. but that's also part of an argument for, I believe, starting off by making two fully rural districts, leaving you the ability to take the other six and make them compact. Okay. So I, ha I had a really quick question. When I first heard, um, I heard, first under, started to understand a little bit about gerrymandering and what that was. Of course, I was really shocked that that's actually a thing that happens. I, I kept saying, how does this, how is that possible that it happens? And I I've been assured that it's, it certainly does. And then they started to show me some of the maps and I was like, oh yeah, that happened. Um, what does Y and Z do to prevent that? Well, it starts off by establishing the criteria uh, again, in the Constitution that you're not supposed to deviate from. So, you know, compactness of districts, not breaking um, political subdivisions, things along those lines. Uh, one. And two, probably more important than anything else, is it created these, these two commissions, one for congressional and one for state legislative, made up of 12 people, four Republicans, well, four from the largest major political party, four from the second largest political party. So right now that's Democrats and Republicans. And then four commissioners who are unaffiliated with either party. And then it tasks nonpartisan legislative council staff from the state capitol with drawing um, the initial map based on the criteria listed in Y and Z. They're not allowed to even look at uh, residences of existing legislators with the exception of state senators who are in the middle of a four-year term. They're not allowed to draw a state senator who's in the middle of, the, of his or her four-year term okay. out of the seat that they represent. <clears throat> and then if the partisan people or the commissioners want to make a change to the map drawn by legislative council following the criteria, it takes a vote of eight of the 12 and it must include a vote of at least, I think it's at least two of the unaffiliated, not affiliated with either party people to try to take all the partisanship out of it possible. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so looking at the state redistricting, how many seats are we going to see added in the state house? Ah, zero. The zero. state house and state Senate are fixed 65 in the house, 35 in the Senate. So what happens after redistricting is you just have to add population or redraw the seats so that they're relatively even in population. So let's go back to my part of the state. Let's go back to Eastern Colorado. The, the um, 65th House District currently has Cheyenne County, Kit Carson County, Yuma County, Phillips County, Sedgwick County, Logan County, and Morgan County. Well, at the time, that was within the boundary of 165th of 5 million people. Those seven counties no longer make up 165th of 5.8 million people. So we're going to have to add 
more people to that district. And the same thing with the 64th, which you guys have uh, as one of the House districts in Action 25 area. It has the southeast corner of Colorado. That district also doesn't have enough total people in it now. So it needs to expand in its size to get to 89,230 people, plus or minus two and a half percent. And the same thing with the Senate district. So you take Senate District 35, which right now um, rolls across all of Southern Colorado, you know, from the San Luis Valley all the way to Backett County, excluding most of the city of Pueblo and Pueblo West. That's Senate 35. It's the biggest Senate district in the state. 17 counties or something crazy like that. Um, it still doesn't have enough people in it. So they're going to have to somehow, some way add people to that. And then you go up into the metro area, you know, northern Colorado, um, they're going to end up making those seats smaller, believe it or not, because people have moved into those seats to, to exceed the population that is evenly distributed amongst the state of Colorado. So they're going to shrink and we're going to grow, basically, is what right. you're saying for the rural. Do you foresee any of the um, more of the rural districts, specifically around Denver, like possibly encroaching in on the Denver metro area to add some of that population? Yeah, what, what's likely to happen is something like that. Well, you got two choices. Um, again, let's, you know, you're looking at, at, at the rural parts of the state, eastern Colorado, western Colorado. You can make one really big, entirely eastern Colorado state Senate seat, um, or you can try to keep two Senate seats with at least a chunk of eastern Colorado in it. If you do the latter with two seats, you're necessarily going to have to grab more population somewhere out of that front range mix to make sure that you get the Senate seat all the way up to less than 170,000, 180. I got that one at uh, 165,700. That's the challenge. And so we had a we had this discussion at the board meeting um, last Friday on the Action 22 board meeting. Um, and there's a, a map that we're really liking that would do exactly what you're laying out. Um, it would put uh, the Western Slope as a district, so District 3. Um, it would make the San Luis Valley part of District 4, as it is now, and it would make uh, El Paso County its own voting district. And they have the population. So looking at it, there's the population to do that. There was still some concern, I think, about representation. Um, we had some, some of our board members say, look, we very rarely saw or heard from or even were responded to um, by people who were supposed to be representing us. How do we make sure that they, we get represented as we're talking about these maps um, and how this should go? Um, is there any way to do that with redistricting to make sure that these guys who have felt that, uh, that they're not really getting representative? Because they don't have to be, because they're where they're, the numbers are in a different place. I mean, the voting numbers are in a different place. There's no incentive to get them to, to look at some of these really small rural communities. That is part of the problem when you have a district that's going to be 725,000 people. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I'm such a huge advocate for the two rural districts concept, because then there won't be a population base area that so overwhelms the rest of the little tiny counties like Yuma County that we never see 
the, the, the representative or the member of Congress. Part of that is in the nature of, of who those folks are. I mean, right. you know, Cory Gardner is one of my closest friends in the world. And when he had the, the fourth congressional district, he was he was a maniac. He went to every corner of that district all of the time. And it was just in his nature. It's what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And you think Scott back, Tipton I mean, was the same way. Scott <clears throat> right. Tipton was exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. And, and, and Wayne Allard, you know, going back another 20 years, uh, even when he was a U.S. senator, he made a point of having a town hall meeting in every county in Colorado every year, believe yeah. it or not. I, and he I, did I, it. I drove him to a lot of those. <laughs> I, I was the appointed staff driver for Senator Allard when I worked for him. Yeah, but that's part of the that's part of the risk, and that's one of the challenges with the with the big congressional districts. And now, uh, when you get to the state house mm-hmm. side of things, um, that's another reason why you need to make sure that you that you work towards compactness when possible. Mm-hmm. You, when you look at the way uh, House District sixty four right now is gerrymandered, and it's truly an example of gerrymandering. It includes Washington County, which you know goes up to within well, probably forty miles of the Nebraska Panhandle and Backett right. County. And there was no reason for them to do that. It's just that they were mad at the people in Washington County and were poking them in the eye on purpose, in my opinion, because um, there's no reason to do that when you look at at Cheyenne and Kit Carson County um, are. are both south of Washington County, but included in the district north of Washington County. It makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, look yeah. at the mountain. The the house district uh, map for the mountains is is, is equally gerrymandered. Uh, w- you know, when you include, you, you know how hard it is to get around those communities in the winter. And yeah. you need to be thoughtful of that when you're drawing these house district maps. Uh, again, you can't do it on the congressional maps, but on the house district maps where they're going to be down to, uh, what are they at? Something like um, 80, 89,000 people. You should try to keep those in a way, you know, situated in a way that um, everybody that lives in the district has access to their legislator and vice yeah. versa. Yeah. And, and you know, to, to defend our, our former bosses, you know, it, again, in the winter, it, like I could have drove to the Gulf of Mexico before I could have got to Grand Junction some nights. And um, we had a scheduler that started off and she wasn't from Colorado. And I remember her booking meetings from Denver to Grand Junction in December with four hour break in between. And I was telling her, I was like, you can't do that. She's like, well, it's, you know, when I look on the map, this is how far it is. I'm like, that's a 12 hour (laughs) drive if you can even make it over there during the winter. And then you even get into some of the mountain communities with the state districts where you have like Telluride to um, Montrose where on the map, it's right next to each other. And it's still another eight hour drive to travel 40 miles as the crow flies. And, yeah. and, and then throw, and then throw in red mountain pass, which is closed through most of the winter. And, it, yeah. and it's, it's actually, you actually have a state uh, house seat that has uh, membership from both sides of red mountain pass. It makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. But again, if you look at a map and sometimes people that aren't familiar with these areas, they're like, Oh, it's right next to each other on a map. (laughs) Well, and that's, what's going to be, that's, what's going to be really important about these 21 public hearings uh, around the state. Uh, You know, they're required to have three in each of the seven congressional districts. So there will have to be a public hearing where the people of, of the San Luis Valley will get to come and tell the commissioners and legislative council staff, what's important to them, why they're a community of interest with, with other people. And, you know, about the roads, for instance, that, 
It's just ridiculous that, you know, you can't get from point A to point B for four months out of the year. We ought not be included in a district with that. And Y and Z, Y and Z say that the legislative council staff shall take into account uh, public testimony that is consistent with the criteria for drawing maps. So when this when these hearings come about, um, how do our listeners and membership get involved with this to say their piece? They're, they will they will be you know I'm I'm sure given that we're under semi COVID rules, there will be multiple opportunities to participate in these things. One through um, letters and emails to the commissions, and another one for actual public in person testimony. And I kind of think that we've we've almost perfected this remote participation that. I bet you there will be, but I don't know this yet, but I, I'm going to guess that there might be the ability to participate in these things remotely. So you'll have a chance to sign up, come in and testify and say, you know, service the San Luis Valley. I want to hear from them. I want to hear from folks in San Luis Valley. Um, would you rather be part of the, of the Western Slope Congressional District or part mm-hmm. of the Eastern Plains Congressional District? It's, it's not, you know, it's not up to me. I'd love to take them because I see San Luis Valley as a, as a rural farming area. Um, that cares about water and, and agriculture and, and hopefully energy production. Um, but, you know, it should be up to them to say, not, not me. Come, yeah. in and, come in and say your piece. Yeah, and we're going to do our best to make sure everybody's aware of this and try to motivate people to come in and, and testify and submit letters and everything. And as you know, like we already support one of the proposed maps that we've seen out there. And, and this is very important to Action 22 and its membership. And I see Action 22 as a great clearinghouse that will let people, um, you know, to inform people of when their opportunities will be. Well, thanks, Greg. We've just got um, um, a minute or two left. Um, Is there anything that you would like our listeners to understand or know that they don't maybe don't understand about this process already? Well, the two most important takeaways, as far as I'm concerned, are one, the eyes of the entire country are going to be on Colorado to see if legislative districts can be drawn in an apolitical manner, one. And two, as citizens, you have the opportunity to actually participate and have you know, your wishes heard by legislative council staff and the commission um, through the ways that we discussed just a second ago. And you should avail yourselves of that because this decision lasts for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what is uh, Colorado capable of as far as setting the example. We're going to have, uh, but it's going to be on the energy front. We have the legendary Francis Concilia with us, um, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, 
self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. Uh, for the second part of our show today, we have uh, Frances Concilia. She is a originally from Pueblo, but she's a Denver lawyer, and she formerly sat uh, as a commissioner for the Public Utility Commission, or the PUC. There's a lot of acronyms in energy, as you, as you might have already picked up. Um, and she's also um, the principal for the Concilia Public Utility Law, um, and strategy firm. So the question we're going to pose today is basically what we talked about uh, all during our all of our discussions on energy last week. But in particular, we've asked Francis to join us and talk a little bit, follow up from our, our energy summit last week and talk a little bit about a Senate Bill uh, 072 or Senate Bill 72. But we asked us the same question is how does energy policy, how do we find a balanced approach to energy policy that benefits customers, strengthens Colorado's economy, and expands Colorado's energy infrastructure? So Senate Bill 72 is all about transmission. Francis, thanks for being with us. Tell us, can we start out with a little bit about you and how you got involved in a transmission discussion? Well, when I was on the Public Utilities Commission, I was the only commissioner that was really interested in markets and transmission at that point. So there was a Mountain West transmission docket that was open to study um, what nine different or seven utilities were doing, Public Service, Black Hills, and a few others, in terms of having a joint agreement on tariffing. So I ran that docket. There were five stakeholder meetings. There were dozens of people, hundreds of things filed, uh, expert reports that were done by each utility, by the Brattle Group to analyze whether or not it was cost efficient to have a Mountain West transmission group, which was not really going to be a full regional transmission organization. It was sort of a baby step into it. 
And then public service pulled out of that because they concluded that there was not a cost benefit to customers. It was going to cost customers more than it was going to benefit them. So then in 2019, the General Assembly passed Senate Bill 236, which required the Public Utilities Commission to study markets and transmission. So I was designated as the hearing commissioner to open that docket. Uh, the legislature told the commission to spend $500,000 on, on a study. Uh, myself and staff put together a 20-page order that played out a lot of the history uh, so that people would have a background. And um, then after I left the commission, staff proceeded to get the request for proposal. And so Siemens has been hired to do a cost-benefit analysis on some very big, but also some detailed parameters that were set forth in this 20-page order that was issued in 2019. So it just became extremely interesting to me because there was so much, I'm trying to get the right words because, you know, I do speak in four-letter terms, which has gotten trouble <laughs> in the past. Um, there was a lot of misunderstanding about key concepts, and there was, I thought, a rush to judgment. I am still not persuaded that a regional transmission organization is a good idea. Uh, the study will be completed May 1. It's cost the citizens $500,000 because this came from the fixed utility fund, which is paid for by utility customers. And then it will open up for comments. Uh, stakeholders can file whatever they want into the proceeding. And the commissioners, the three of them who are there now, two of them are picked by Governor Polis, will make a decision uh, and a recommendation as to whether or not it's in the best interest to join an RTO. Now, regional transmission organizations are tied into, is there enough transmission out there? And regional transmission organizations, if you join them, uh, they're the ones that really decide where the transmission is gonna be built and who's gonna pay for it. So these transmission are tied into the regional transmission organizations. When I read Senate Bill 72, I was appalled and quite frankly annoyed because what the sponsor did on that bill is he made the decision for all of you and for the commission. Just, and the Senate Bill 72 says, the investor-owned utilities shall join a regional transmission organization and the commission shall order them to. A, I don't think the commission has the authority to do that, but B, they're in the process of doing the study. So what uh, the sponsor did is he created what I call a rebuttable presumption, because I am a lawyer, and he said it is in the best interest of the citizens of Colorado to order the utilities to join an RTO. And the commission should now study not whether or not it's in the best interest, but if it's in the against their public interest. So, okay, so for those of our listeners who don't speak lawyer, what's the difference between in the best public interest and not in the best public interest? Like, what is the difference? Well, the difference is the commission right now is looking at, is this a good idea for all the citizens? With the, if this new bill passes, what they will have to do is put on their advocate's hat, which you know regulators shouldn't have on, and say, you have to stay in this RTO unless we determine it's against the public interest. And what, would, what would determine against the public interest? What qualifies for that? beats the hell out of me because they still don't define what the public interest is. And we, when I was on the commission, had tried to lay out some parameters as to what was the public interest. One was cost. Yeah. One was reliability. 
and one was um, reducing carbon emissions. And so you look at all of those. And when I look at how RTOs have functioned and the states that have their utilities in them, I can tell you that most states that have their utilities in a regional transmission organization have much higher rates than Colorado. Colorado has been able, even in spite of Black Hills, which is a whole separate issue, which I won't go into here, but even though Black Hills rates are very high, 42% higher than public services, Colorado's electric rates are much more modest on an average basis than other states that are in RTOs. So if we were to, if the, we were to force um, utilities to join, join an RTO, is it any RTO? Is there a specific RTO? And who else is part of the RTO that we're supposed to join? That was a lot of questions, sorry. Well, um, there's not a lot of options. Um, there's CAISO, which is the California Independent System Operator. And you can't join them because CAISO is controlled by the California General Assembly. And if you join a, a, an RTO, you give up a lot of authority and so if you join CAISO, you would be giving the authority to the General Assembly in California to decide how things are done. And over the last 10 years, there have been numerous proposals made to the General Assembly in California to sort of share the authority so that other states could join. And they don't play well with other people because they think that they have the word on high as to how we should all live our lives. So CAISO is not an option. The other option is SPP, which is Southwest Power Pool. And the problem with Southwest Power Pool is, A, they had blackouts in the extreme weather this in February. Uh, B, these entities are expensive. SPP costs $185 million a year to run, and those costs are all shared with its participants. And SPP, under its articles, its mission statement is a 501c6, they do not act in the public interest. There is no requirement that they make decisions that are in the best interest of the public. They make decisions that are in the best interest of their members, and they have three classifications of members, transmission owners, transmission customers, and then there's some financial traders that are in there too. So it's, and these organizations, um, what I had given to the legislators, the Senate on Tuesday, and thought they might read, but they didn't, is photographs of their very expensive buildings. I mean, Kaiso's got 500 employees in a LEED certified building that is stunning. I'd like to go to work there every day. You would too. SPP has another gorgeous building, not LEED certified, that has 600 employees. Colorado ratepayers will be paying for some of this. And the question is, does it add enough benefit to outweigh the cost? So I guess that's my next question with regard to that. This is a very, very complicated issue. And if we're gonna say that what's in the best public interest or what is not in the best public interest, how is anybody supposed to know, um, as a, a regular ratepayer, how are they supposed to know what the difference is? This, this requires an associate's degree to understand any of this. Well, you know, it requires more than a law degree because uh, I've got the law degree and it took me a long time to understand this and there's still bits and pieces. There's lots of articles being written about it as we go. Um, and that's why I thought and tried to persuade the Senate Energy and Transportation Committee that they needed to kill the bill or at least strip out the RTO piece. So let's well, talk about what happened on Tuesday. 
Well, that's when you testified. How did that go? What were you talking about? And you had sent me an email saying something's changed. Let's so let's talk about Tuesday. Well, what happened Tuesday, and I thank your participants uh, and your members in part for the, the few good things that happened. One good thing that happened is there, um, they put, and let me jump ahead to the transmission organization because part of this bill also sets up an independent authority that will make all the decisions about building transmissions in the state and they will be financed through revenue bonds that are issued and they will be controlled by a part-time volunteer board that's not paid, which means whoever wants to build the transmission will be running the place because this stuff is too complicated. Even at the PUC, when we had experts who advised us, it was a very hard decisions to make. So um, Senator Scott is the only person who asked one question and he asked a question of Alice Jackson, the head of uh, public service, to said, what is the problem you're trying to fix? Why are you not building more transmission? And Alice had some very good answers. She said, we were gonna proceed with some transmission in southeastern Colorado. It was not cost effective. It was gonna cost customers too much. There was no reason to do it, so we didn't do that. We have been building smaller transmission lines. So the things that your members helped on, and I wanna give them a shout out and thank them, is there was enough consternation behind the scenes at the Senate Transportation and Energy Committee that the power of eminent domain was sort of whittled down because the statute currently gives this new authority the power of eminent domain. So now the power of eminent domain does not apply to county or municipally owned lands. It will still apply to private lands and it will still affect conservation easements. The proponents of this bill, I'm told, refer to the eminent domain pieces to solve the San Luis Valley Lewis Bacon problem, because 10 years ago, he tried to build transmission, or the public service did, he shut that down, he then put a lot of land under a conservation easement, and if this passes and the governor signs it, uh, that conservation easement means squat because they will be able to condemn and pay for only the value of the sliver of land they take. They also put in a requirement that they will be subject to the 1040 local control rules about siting. And I think the fact that they didn't have that in the original bill is telling that they're not interested in local input, but your members got out there and they put that in. So that's good. And then they put the labor protection piece in so that the transmission builders, in some respects, uh, will have to compete on the same basis that like public service or Black Hills or Tri-State does. They'll have to hire, um, for the most part, union workers or best value employment metrics. It's a little more complicated than that. So some progress was made, but not a lot. Okay. What would need to happen at this point for this this bill to sit comfortably. I mean, not in no legislation does anybody get everything that they want. What would need to happen for at this point to for there to be some consensus, but to make everybody feel comfortable with joining an RTO or doing that? Can we build our own? Can we have our own RTO? I guess would be my next question. Um, that was explored in the docket that I was in charge of before I left the commission. And FERC requires you to have a, a certain size. Colorado alone doesn't have the size. You could create one, but they are really complicated and very expensive to set up. And I'm not sure that that would be in the best interest. 
Um, you know, what could you do and improve it? I, I don't know. It's someone described it as a turkey, but I just think that's insulting to turkeys. This is just <laughs> this is a really bad bill. Uh, at a minimum, they should have stripped out the RTO piece and wait until the Public Utilities Commission finishes its study. And, you, you know, um, I became a fan of the Public Utilities Commission staff. There's a lot of hardworking people there. Um, some really smart women professionals. And think about it. You've been working on this for two years. You modeled an RFP. You went out and spent $500,000 of ratepayer money. And Siemens is going to produce their analysis May 1. And the General Assembly is saying, so sad, so sorry. We've changed our mind. Don't worry about that. So why is it so important to have this be the cornerstone of that why is the, it's so important? Do they feel it's so important to, for us to join an RTO? Um, I think there are certain people that love to resume build and fundraise over these sorts of issues because the environmental community is very enthusiastic about RTOs. I think a lot of them are very good hearted people and really care about the environment as do I. I'm not sure they understand the complexities of an RTO. I mean, I was sitting there Tuesday when nobody had a question to ask me, which I found disappointing. Um, but I had my three minutes, the same as everyone else, and ARP had their three minutes, and Alice Jackson had her three minutes. Um, I was struck by how the environmentalists, because the uh, Nature Conservancy testified and um, the Sierra Club, how they've sort of change their mission. Um, okay. And um, I'll make some enemies with this, but you know, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> nope. Somehow they care more <clears throat> about closing down fracking than they do about keeping pristine forests whole. What transmission building in the mountain areas is going to be is you're going to run a transmission highway <laughs> through forests and i don't think the environmental community would be wild if we were running big highways to do extractive drilling and it strikes me that we ought to be evaluating these things on the same basis why do we want a transmission highway through the san luis valley they create forest fires. Look at California. You've got to do vegetation management, right. which is a euphemism for doing um, scraping and cutting timber, uh, you know, strip mining. Um, and right. so I was struck at the environmental community, who I think are good people, having different standards for transmission than they do for um well, yes. Hmm. And Francis, um, just want to say you've always been a champion for Pueblo and us little guys down here. So I appreciate that. Um, one question I always ask when it comes to any energy policy or any policy on the state level and federal is, you know, if this passes, how hard is it going to hit the pocketbooks of those of us in Pueblo and rural Colorado that we don't have a lot of money. And with the COVID, you know, we're hurting worse than ever right now. 
What's going to be that impact if we go forward with this? I think it's going to ultimately increase rates. And the problem with joining an RTO is like joining the Hotel California. It looks great on check-in. You can't get out of the damn things unless yeah. you pay the exit fees, which can be tens of millions of dollars. And uh, I think it will increase rates. The environmental community are convinced that it will allow for deeper penetration of renewable energy. I quite frankly don't know what that means. I don't think they do either. Um, one of the very nice people said on Tuesday that it troubled her to think that public service was producing all this wind energy and didn't have a place to sell it. Um, if you join a market and public service has excess wind generation, um, the market prices that and knows that. And so they pay, you have to pay to have somebody else take it. So last summer, I think it was running two to four cents a kilowatt hour they were charging to take it because the market knows the only way the production tax credit continues to be valuable for a wind generator is if it's actually running. Solar's different. That's an investment tax credit. Wind is a production tax credit. So if you just can't produce, you know, sell the wind, you don't get the production tax credit. So these markets and the tariffs they put in are just so complicated that only the insiders will understand them. So many of our energy partners, Action 22 and, and um, these organizations have taken on very, very aggressive goals in order to reduce um, carbon footprint. Um, and they're doing it in... I mean, as far as this goes, lightning speed to do that. How is how would this possibly um, add or help those goals? How is this going to be a benefit to those to them trying to do exactly what they're supposed to be doing with joining an RTO? Well, the only way you can do it is if you have a tariff that is drafted so that it gives a benefit to clean energy. So what you have then is no longer just a straight market on price. You have a market based on other things. And just keeping track of that and figuring how the energy flows is a cost. And I think that the utilities and in Colorado, not only the ones that are regulated by the PUC, but the others, the uh, rural electrics, the municipals, are really making strides in terms of meeting the governor's goals and meeting the statutory goals. So I am not convinced you need an RTO to get there. And the other problem with RTOs is you transfer almost all the authority from your state PUC to the RTO and to FERC. And if you think the Public Utilities Commission is complicated, you have not looked at the FERC filings. <laughs> FERC well, and, yeah, go ahead. and I guess that was exactly the point I wanted to make is that if we do this, this, this is not a Colorado transmission um, organization. This is somebody else, and we've just given over, and so I excuse the pun, the power to somebody else to create the power in our state. Yeah. Am, I, am I getting that correct? You got it. You nailed it. Okay. Um, is there anything um, that you think right now 
that would persuade the proponents of this bill um, to change their minds or to, to make alterations um, or to back off on this at all? Well, I think that people should contact President Garcia because he is the president of the Senate. I mean, this bill is being pushed by, I think, uh, Steve Fenberg and Chris Hansen. Chris is a sponsor and he got Don Corum on it. And Don, I have a lot of respect for. Don thinks it's gonna create jobs. And Chris threw out on Tuesday a statistic that I found amusing. He said it's, well, he had a lot of statistics I found amusing, but nobody wanted to vet them and nobody wanted to ask him questions. I could have cross-examined him and done one hell of a job, I want you to know, but I didn't have the time and nobody asked. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> but, I would have liked to have sold yeah, tickets, yeah, fundraiser for Action 22. Um, he, he said that uh, it's established fact that every mile of transmission creates 76 jobs. And nobody said to him, what kind of jobs and for how long? Yes. And I believe that transmission building will create some jobs and it will fill up your Motel 6s on the Eastern Plains and maybe a food truck that drives by from Kansas and give, you know, sells food to the workers, but these are not good high paying jobs. Right. Francis, I'm so, I appreciate you so much for being with us. We are out of time. We could talk about this for a lot longer. Um, we're going to be watching and seeing what we can do to help out with that. Um, hey, Chad Borthman, I know you're listening next week. We will see you and meet you in person for the first time ever. Um, when we do our show about um, ag appreciation up in Denver, uh, Brian and I will be up there. Um, and Till then, um, or next time, I will ask overly complicated questions, and Brian will share his uh, recipe for uh, velvet red green chili cupcakes. We'll see you guys then. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader 